Hey there, and thanks for tuning in. I've added this note to the beginning of my most recent and highest downloaded episodes to let you know of a few changes and hopefully avoid any confusion for you as listeners. You will hear me call the show Life After Business as well as reference various ventures I've been a part of over the years. When I started the show, I originally named it Life After Business because I was on a mission to learn everything I wish I would have known before we sold our family business back in 2014. And after 200 episodes and Tons of information that I've learned. I finally decided to change the name to better reflect me, the content, and the guests. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is business owners and entrepreneurs who were the happiest and most successful, in my mind, didn't focus only on sucking all the cash out of the company, and they knew the business was going to eventually continue on without them at some point in time. They literally knew exactly what they wanted from their business long term and why. They intentionally focused on building a valuable company so they could have the freedom of choices to do what they wanted from the business. So they focused on strategies that would grow value long term and give them the freedom to choose. You can learn more about the name change, my major lessons, and our definition of intentional growth in episode 200. Enjoy the episode that you're listening to right now, and thanks for being a listener. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand how to increase the value of your business, what your company is worth, and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business and take pride in a valuable company that gives you freedom and choices to exit on your terms. Hello and welcome back. This is episode 181. And if you're tuning in and you're a business owner and you're trying to figure out what are different ways to grow the value of your company, to create more options, what are different stories that people have gone through so that way you can learn and help refine what your eventual point B is and what you eventually want. Today's an episode that you have to listen to because Gail McCann is on the show today to share with us how they grew and sold their company twice. That's right, two different times to do to two different buyers, a decade plus apart, and wildly different experiences. Gail and Pat started their healthcare brokerage company back in the 80s, and then they grew it up and then were appro- was approached by one of their large clients for synergistic purposes and a lot of the out of the booth stories that you're hearing me talk about, went through with the sale, selling to the strategic buyer, sold it, worked for them for four years, bought it back from them based on how they wrote the sale agreement because they had a predetermined price that they were allowed to buy their company back from the buyer ended up going through with that then only to just go back grow the company more over the next decade and to eventually sell to a private equity firm that is owned by a teacher's pension out of canada It is one heck of a story, and Gail shares what her and Pat learned, how they hired a team of advisors that allowed them to buy the company back and to protect them throughout these different journeys. If there's one big takeaway for you as you listen to this story is learning from other people's journeys and helping you refine what you want. So that way you can go and you can approach the out of the blue offers, you can approach your eventual growth plan and value creation plan that to create the options that you want. One of these options may or may not be right for you, but the more you learn about the different things that are available, the more you're going to figure out what you want. If you want to do a deeper dive on how to create a valuable company with intentional growth, so that way it gives you more and more options and freedom, check out one of our two-day boot camps. It's based on the five principles about how to grow your company with intention to give you more options and freedom. You're going to learn ways to increase the value of your company. You're going to understand all the different exit options so that way you can reverse back into what you want. We use two case studies to 
show how two companies in two vastly different situations were able to grow the value of the company to get what they want. The boot camps are five grand for the first ticket and then half off every ticket after that. We've got people signed up for the February. We're almost full and people are bringing their partner. We've got people bringing their CFO or their executive so everybody can get on the same value growth plan to increase the probability that you're going to get what you want. We hold them at a local university, so they're coming up at Bethel University, Minnesota. We've got one coming up in Ohio, Dayton, Ohio, at Sinclair University, and we've also got one coming up in Tucson, Arizona on March 3rd and 4th if you want to get the heck out of the cold and you're living in the cold. So with that being said, I hope you enjoy this interview with Gail McCann. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Two days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Two days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of your journey as an entrepreneur. Gail, how are you? Hi, Ryan. Doing well. How about you? Good. You're the smart person. You are sitting in Arizona while I'm up and it was it was 15 below here this morning. And uh, you're originally from here. So you are literally the smarter person of the two on, on the phone. Well, and thanks to, thanks to well, a lot of things. Well, yeah, we're fortunate to be down here in Scottsdale and it's, it is uh, beautiful. And I, and I think you, you, the purpose of the, the interview is you're going to be sharing us how you've earned through the School of Hard Knocks and a lot of hard work to, <laughs> to earn your keep down there, that's for sure. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and I'm I'm excited and I'm happy to have you on the show because, I, you know, you, you've, you and uh, your husband have done a really good job and you have a lot to be proud of over the last couple decades that you've been in business. And it's a really cool story because I went to school for the listeners. I went to school with your, your kids and, and then I've followed you. Actually, I don't know if you ever knew this, Gail, but I, I had the opportunity. It was literally work for you guys or go work for yeah. my, my family business. I don't know if you knew that, but that was like the final no. decision. <laughs> yeah. So oh. like it was either going to be selling healthcare benefits or copiers. Right. So <laughs> oh. <laughs> I got, I got suckered in at the last second by uh, my dad's GM to go work for them. So this story could be different if, if that hadn't happened, I might not even be here, <laughs> but uh, yeah. for the, uh, let's, let's kind of go back and, um, you know, I I love to start with you know how you how you guys started the business and you know you you partnered with your husband, which I've heard good and bad stories. So there's a lot behind some mm-hmm. of the things that you guys have done. So let's how did you guys decide to start your own agency and like decide to break out on your own? Yeah, well, I actually have and Pat as well. We have two entirely different college majors, and neither of them are insurance. But when I started in my original career, it just didn't, which was actually nursing. It actually was not what I thought it would be. And so I only stayed in that profession for about a year and was actually approached by someone in life insurance, but they touted it as financial planning. <laughs> and <laughs> I heard that before. <laughs> right, right. And so the idea of being independent and the sky's the limit from an earning standpoint, being your own boss, all of that was very attractive to me. So I went into the life insurance business when I was 25. And Pat at the time was working in a property and casualty brokerage. And within the first year, 
I earned more than double what he was making. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and so he thought, wow, this looks attractive. So within probably two years, he made the decision to move into the more of the life insurance and employee benefits business. That's how it all started. And so we went into business together. And um, what year was this? The rest is history. <laughs> we went into business together in 84. And I had started in 82. So when you guys did that, Gail, did you guys set any like uh-huh. foundational boundaries between yourselves? Because like, I mean, you're, you, you have to be one of the few people I know that did it within two companies and for decades without totally killing each other. So like, I'm sure there's yeah. some other underlying stories, but like, did you set what set boundaries to begin with or did you just learn on the fly? How did, how did you guys make it work? Really simple. I had my own clients and he had his own clients. So the difficult part was which one does the employee look toward for, you know, who's in charge really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when it came to that piece, wasn't always a hard line, but the employees knew when to come to me for certain items, which were more human resource, I guess, related. And then when it came to maybe employee disputes that, you know, something was, wasn't going right, they typically went to Pat. But that, you know, that changed over the years. But the, the biggest item was that Pat and I were equals. He wasn't my boss. I wasn't his boss. I had my clients, he had his clients. We managed our clients differently. And the, the place where we uh, worked together was the employees and, and the looking toward the future and growth of the business. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it, it, I think in your, maybe your, your world and the, the agency and insurance world, it might be a little bit easier because you do mm-hmm. have your own book versus like managing one yeah, big sales yeah. force or like, so you have different revenue revenue channels, revenue books, instead of having to like choose operations or finance or sales or something like that. Right. Well, we did have salespeople. And so I took over more of the training of the salespeople, but Pat also did work with the salespeople. So we did have a sales force. So you guys were, when you guys started, did you, did you have like a vision of like, was it just make money as a salesperson? Did you have vision, a vision to build a business like you guys did? And then maybe kind of give some overall like, you know, metrics for timeline and how, how you guys grew and kind of the, the amount of employees, like how did it, how did it all evolve over the years? Yeah, we, we actually made a decision early on that we wanted to be more of a boutique brokerage, working with a certain type of client and starting to work on our um, niche. And so that's what we devoted ourselves to really the entire time was working with less clients, having less salespeople, but doing it very, very, very well. Very high level of service and what we brought to the table for the clients. We didn't want thousands of clients. We wanted hundreds of clients that we could really do a good job for and get to know on a very one-on-one basis. So we knew all of our clients very, very well. Was that, and I want to put a pin in that and come back to that in uh, a couple of the sales as you guys transitioned your books, because that's one thing that a lot of 
entrepreneurs struggle with because the business is so much mm-hmm. them that they can't sell it or it's a complete earnout or like there's a lot of complications with trying to transition the business. So I want to make sure we come back to that. So then, mm-hmm. you know, when you, it was interesting when you say that you guys decided to do that because Gail, there's this part of like in strategic planning, like you, you're either choosing to do what you did or low cost, high volume. I mean, a yeah. lot of times I see people that just do things, but they don't make a decision, which actually it makes it more challenging to grow the business. So like, was it something mm-hmm. in your guys' past or was it just pure headache, you know, that you want to get rid of headaches or how did you guys decide to do that? You know, it was just uh, our personalities. Our personalities were such that it wouldn't have been fulfilling for us if the business wasn't really part of us and really kind of a family. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to really do the best we could for every single client. And if you have thousands of clients, it would just have gotten out of control. Mm-hmm. So that's how that's just how we wanted to work. Which is awesome. I, I just interviewed a, a guy named Gina Wickman, which he wrote a book called The Entrepreneur Leap, which is about talking about doing this stuff intentionally before you go into business instead of all of a sudden uh-huh. having having like a mass amount of clients and then being miserable and then wanting to dump the company because you're so miserable. <laughs> so it, yeah. it, it, it definitely happens. So how, how did, like, as you guys were growing, was it, when you say you guys had a decision to be a boutique shop, was, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Like maybe give us some ideas of what that means to you. Like how many employees, what was the, like the setup of what boutique looks like for you guys? Yeah. So we at the height had 20 employees. That's all we ever had was 20 employees. And since Pat and I were the main salespeople for many, many years, we added a few here and there, but the majority of people were support people. We did something very innovative that no one else had ever done. And we actually hired an an underwriter from an insurance company. And so we wanted to, to focus on having basically a setup or uh, support people that were the top in their industry and we're going to give our clients hmm. just A-plus, level 10 care and counseling. And so that's, we spent our money more on the support people and really less on salespeople. So as it ended up, when we sold the business, we only had three other salespeople. Interesting. And we needed them to basically, as we exited, to take on the mm-hmm. clients that we were now moving on from. Interesting. So, uh, I mean, what yeah. what, per- what percentage of your and Pat's clients were the overall book? I'm what, 80, 20 kind of thing? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, mm-hmm. what, maybe... Well, walk us through, Gail, because you guys sold the business twice, which mm-hmm. I, I found you're, it's a more common story than you would think. <laughs> I've had quite a few people yeah. on the show that, show that have actually done that. Um, yeah. And it's usually because of the interest, it's usually because of the, the oh. first one didn't go as, as anticipated. Um, so how, like, where in the, you know, so if you guys started in 84, when did that, why did you, why did you guys sell the first time and what transpired and how did that all kind of unfold? Okay. Well, probably remember back in the 90s, there was talk, you know, um, politically and economically of a single-payer system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there was a time when it really seemed like it was going to happen. So that was kind of like we felt like it was a warning. But meanwhile, 
we had a one of my larger clients was on a, the board of a medical malpractice insurance company, and they wanted to buy an employee benefits firm to then offer benefits to their medical group clients because okay. that's all they as a medical malpractice insurance company their clients were physicians at hospitals and also at medical groups and that was our niche was hospitals and medical groups and okay. so they uh they approached us and made us an offer that was really too good to be true along with in the back of our minds wondering you know is single payer coming or not and so we made the decision based on really the offer and that kind of looming possibility yeah economic so thing you just it. don't know about yeah what, yeah, yeah so and, yeah so we sold it in 1999 so this so it's funny you know because what i think is really interesting about your story is as you'd said in your know, uh part of the recording and we'll get into is that both of them approached uh -huh. you and i was explaining how often yeah. that's happening these days and yeah. so like in my keynotes i explain to you know in in our uh we have these five principles and uh, the third one is the different different types of exit options and I, most people don't realize how many there are and mm -hmm. there that so many times it's either the strategic buyer or the random out of the blue off offer that comes you know from unsolicited but how did you you know like what was the relationship build up before they offered this to you because i think and the and the the reason behind this question is, you know, because a lot of the entrepreneurs are visionaries and very strategic, so they're always thinking about the opportunity, opportunity, opportunities, and they're opportunistic about like what can what can mm -hmm. happen with their industry and how to like you know you know how to sell your stuff to different clients. And so there's this infactu yeah. infatuation with like what could be, but not really understanding what reality is. So like, what was your relationship uh -huh. with them, and then how did that like that, that that dialogue transpire to the point where they actually offered it to you? Yeah. Well, we knew nothing about them. I'd never oh, really? even heard of them being in benefits. They're in medical malpractices in the, um, you know, the liability end of insurance, which we were not in. So I had never heard of them. But what their promise was is their clients. So I mentioned their clients are physicians and hospitals. Many of my clients were their clients, but they had so many more that we did not have. So it was an opportunity to, number one, be endorsed by them because we they owned us. So we would have access to their clients that weren't ours yet. They were in Minneapolis and we're in St. Paul. They said, well, you are going to stay in St. Paul. You are going to continue to run your business just as you have. A long arm will be there for you and you have access to our clients, but you're basically going to run the business completely on your own. And thirdly, they have offices in uh, four other states, and they were also going to assist in our growth into the other states. So I know that kind of goes against what I said earlier in that we didn't want to grow so much, but we thought, well, maybe this is an opportunity to, to give that a try. And what ended up transpiring is we were able to access their clients and we did write more business. The moving, expanding to the other states really never did happen. And again, maybe that's a function of us really reflecting and, and thinking we really don't, don't want to do that anyway. So that could have been part of us, but the opportunity didn't really present itself. 
And then the biggest difference was even though they were managing us on a very, as I mentioned, uh, relationship, yeah, uh, there still were significant cultural differences. You know, they were more corporate and we were not. And so sometimes <laughs> I, I know Pat. So like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right. <laughs> All right, Pat, we're going to sit down and we're going to do these very structured meetings every two days. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So that wasn't very good. And they, oh my gosh, all the different forms we had to constantly sign and submit. Yeah. So, and the, but the smartest thing that actually Pat was the one who brought this up when we structured the, the agreement as far as the purchase and the sale, we put a buyback clause in the document. So oh, that really? at the end of the, yeah, at the end of the, there was a four year buyout. And at the end of the four years, if we wanted to, we could buy ourselves back. Oh, wow. So that clause was in there, and and we had the right to exercise it whether they approved or not. Wow. Yeah. So That's, we did. That... We said, we're buying ourselves back. This isn't working. And they had no choice but to agree. Super, super interesting. So I want to yeah. – there's a lot, a lot to unpack in there, too. So like – and um, – be- before I go back, because I want, I'm curious on like the deal structure and then how some of the things worked in those four years. But did mm-hmm. was there a predetermined valuation like methodology for when you were to buy them back, or if yeah. you were to buy yourself? Oh, so you didn't have to like yeah. renegotiate valuation. It was all. Was there a formula? No. no, the formula was pretty much the same one that they bought us. The same kind of structure. So how they purchased us, then we could purchase ourselves back with the same terms. Interesting. Super cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's all, that's very interesting. So yeah, to go back it just to gives you a, a an yeah, out just that's awesome. it doesn't work. <laughs> right, right. And um so when you guys were going through the the first like structuring and negotiation, so did they did they reach out to you out of the blue and then did like what was the team of advisors like I mean, to, to put something like that in there, I don't know if that was Pat's idea just because or your idea because of you know the competitive nature of your guys's uh, DNA or was it like advice and like, how did that overall structure work? And I'm curious and, and kind of some more context behind the question is that when you have a business like yours, that's very reliant on you two because you're the relationships. Mm-hmm. And then I can see right. the appeal behind someone doing more back office, et cetera. Like what yeah. was the, because I've, I've heard it too many times, Gail, where there's all these promises of how, what could be, but like in a, the nature of a strategic purchase, you know, someone mm-hmm. else with different culture, different people there. I mean, it's a different world. And then how you mm-hmm. run, you know, that's one thing, but then how you run your financials is another thing. So, you know, some things that ends up happening is like, oh yeah, we're going to do this earn out, but then no longer, the owner's no longer in charge of the finances. So the p- mm-hmm. potential of an, of hitting that earn out goes like way down because they're not controlling the resources anymore. So like, how does that maybe kind of go like, I know I asked a lot there, but like from the, the team of advisors and then how you negotiated the structure and what, like how it ended up on the, on the other side? Well, we had very expensive and very good attorneys. <laughs> and we found it really interesting that when we, when we sat at the table with the $400 million insurance company attorney, our attorneys were better prepared and better qualified. and did an amazing job. And so that surprised us that 
we thought, what a good idea to, you know, even if it costs more, just get the best advice you possibly can. So we had two awesome attorneys from one of the largest, I think it is the largest law firm in Minneapolis. And then we had uh, an accountant you probably know, Jim Redpath. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Who is, you know, awesome. A machine. Oh, so we just had the best advisors and we were just so lucky. And that made all the difference in the world. And we made sure of that the second time around, too, was they weren't the same ones. We chose some different ones, but and that was because of a uh, another relationship. But it was the second largest <laughs> law mm-hmm. firm in Minneapolis. So we always had excellent advice. Well, that's, and that, uh, that's that so cool. Really, yeah, really, well, really, really important. So many times, I mean, you, like what I, I've seen, I, I, we we went through it. It's like you don't. A lot of people don't know how to hire good advice, and and or they're like they get what they pay for, right? They try and go for the the garage, you know, the back of the yeah. garage attorney oh. or CPA, and and like if you don't know what you don't know, you're not even going to know that you messed out. Like you know what I mean? Like exactly. you're interested. Yeah. So. Well, after they kind of structure everything, was it like, I don't know. I mean, you don't have to give specifics, but like cash mm-hmm. up front, was it a buyout over time? And then was it tied to you guys retaining clients or was it tied to growth into the other marketplaces? Or what was kind of the, the makeup of that? Yeah, they gave us um, a down payment. And then, but the balance was based on retention of clients and it was a multiple of the revenue. And then they also uh, gave us a salary. And they also paid us commission on groups that we sold. And then they also funded a deferred comp. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah, like, and there's a, there's a, <laughs> I was going to say it's too good because you, you wanted to stay kind of thing or what? No, they, they realized after about one year, and this caused a lot of, I guess, some conflict, and was that they realized that the deal that they had negotiated was not advantageous to them. And so they did ask within a year if they could change the terms. But <laughs> hey, Gail and Pat, we're ma- you guys are making too much money. Uh, how, about, how, about we, how about we change your comp plan? I'm like, well, that's a good negotiation. <laughs> yeah, like, no. And, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and then just as a, this was kind of, this was kind of like probably the, the final stab. When, when we did, decide to buy it back, we, we had to do the same thing that they did, put down a down payment. So we used the deferred comp money that they gave us as the down payment. <laughs> That's fantastic. We're going to buy, we're going to buy, we're going to buy ourselves back with the money that you gave with us. Your money. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, then, so that, oh, that, yeah, that's awesome. Did you, so in that agreement, then there was there any like mm-hmm. clause of like if you die if you guys bought it back you'd owe them money back or like was it just the deal was paid yes. for and then you guys just went back and based on the same valuation you just paid for it again? Yes. Uh huh. So we we yeah, it was fair and square. Yeah. So then was so we paid was them it, back over four years. Okay. Again. Was it? Worth more. I don't know if you can say that. And you can choose to to mm-hmm. plead, plead the fifth. Was it was it worth more or less when you guys bought it back? It was worth more. Okay. Okay. So, well, so this is probably then. Now, if I do the math correct, it's two thousand three ish four. Uh, then yes. 
Well, like as you and Pat, I can't imagine the conversation of going, okay, we're going to do this. So yeah. was, was your conversations, your vision, your strategy, now that you had gone through this once, how did mm-hmm. your like forward vision change? Like what were some of the things like, we're going to do this? Like what was the comment? Like what was the new vision and new target for you guys and to, to want to do this? Well, we still, because of them, we did develop all new relationships with new medical groups and with new with hospitals. And it, it just kind of more or less entrenched us further into our niche. So that was very helpful. So we wrote, after we left them, we wrote a lot of new business because of that past relationship. Um, so that was a good thing. So we just kind of picked up where we left off and continued to, to sell. and. Uh, grow the business with no intention of selling it again. Just, okay, we're back on track and, and we're just going to grow the business as we had started and let's just keep, keep moving on and grow. Was, it, was there some kind of things that you were like, I don't want to do that again? Like, is it more like you wanted to engineer a life that you guys liked more instead of like, okay, well, you know, we went through this. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that because that sucked or that was, those were headaches. I mean, like, this is what we're not going to have to deal with because now that you've made some money and you're back on track mm-hmm. and it's hopefully it's easier. I mean, was there certain things that you said, okay, here's what our new model is going to be or our new forward, forward plan? Well, we knew that our culture didn't blend with corporate culture. I think that we learned that, that we really missed being 100% independent. I think that's mm-hmm. that's one thing that we we red missed. tape and red tape and lots of meetings. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, we didn't miss that. <laughs> so no, you know what was you know over the so 2003. I mean, so you got another 10 years uh-huh. then that you grew it. You know, when you yep. say you had no intention to uh-huh. sell, was it just no have fun, grow, and even though you'd already gone through a sale, it didn't kind of because I think a lot of entrepreneurs, Gail, think that. Like, even though they realize, uh-huh. I mean, they don't realize that they're going to sell or they're something's going to happen. It's going to happen. But like did, that didn't recal- recalibrate you to say, okay, we're going to actually grow this because now we understand valuations and you know, how to harvest value or was yeah. it, mm-hmm. it just didn't matter to you at that point or? No. And, uh, we thought we would continue to, well, we did continue to grow fantastically after that, but then, uh, we decided in, gosh, I think it was 2011 we thought, because I have a lot of clients in a city that's about an hour from the Twin Cities, mm-hmm. and so we thought, let's open a, a second office in this particular city, and we had a consultant that we were working with at the time, and the consultant said, you know what you should do is you should at least get to know one other property and casualty business, so a, a, an insurance brokerage that complements what you do, since we just did a benefits. So you should introduce yourself to one of them. So we did. We chose out of the blue one of the larger PNC agencies in that city. And strangely, eight years earlier, which I did not know, they had been purchased by a private equity firm. And that's how that all happened. They had then introduced us to the private equity firm. And then after about eight months or nine months, it was decided that we all decided that we would merge with this company, uh, which is about an hour 
away from the Twin Cities. And then we'd also merge with another company that's a private equity firm owned about an hour and a half on the other side of the Twin Cities, so south of the Twin Cities. And so they would merge the three of us and we would become one company. And once again, the private equity firm would um, basically be there at arm's length, actually out of Ohio, and let us run our company. And they would uh, they would own a percentage of it, but not a hundred percent. Because a so bunch of people rolled some idea. money into it. Yep, rolled a bunch of money into it. Then yeah. So then yeah. So all three of us came together as one one so, company. So you only had like what a year or two that you guys were back by yourself. No, no. So this, so we we had sold in 2000. oh, 2011. I'm sorry, yeah, there was a decade. I'm right. sorry, I, I yeah, missed so the this zero. Was like sorry, 10 years later. Yeah. yeah. So, so then, we were independent for ten years, and then we did this, which is not really. We didn't consider it really being bought out. We considered it merging with two other entities and having the ability to really grow this business along with a private equity firm who has obviously cash. Yep. Yep. So I want to, I want to peel apart some of that, some of that um, timeline too. So before you guys, you know, had those conversations, which makes sense because so many, you know, the PE firms are just on a hunt, especially right now, like I was saying, they're, they're, Mm -hmm. they're out there like, you know, in lightning speed trying to acquire companies, but to go back for the, for the decade that you guys were by yourself, did mm-hmm. you did you shift any of your strategies and I don't in as more like value creation strategies like because you had realized kind of how value worked the first time and I don't know maybe you're you know in the agency model it might not be as mm-hmm. complicated as some other businesses because you have producers and then you have back office but like is there anything that you did differently to lead up to that conversation that led it to be more transferable or easier to to sell hmm. I would I would say no. So when you, the, 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 what was the reasoning to partner up with the PNC agency then? Was it just kind of more of the, the growth because they've got clients, you've got clients, you don't compete then? Yes. Okay. Exactly. And they could refer their PNC people to us or I'm sorry, clients and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So what was the, what I find interesting um, about the PNC roll-up models that's going on right now, Gail, uh-huh. is that, uh, you still like, even if all this is like, I, I joke around because I, there's uh my partner, the, the PE firm that bought their company rolled up 17 companies in like 24 months. And like, yeah, I, I just think about it from a, from two different angles is like, if every single system process went perfectly, you still, mm-hmm. you still have people that you're having to integrate together. So like, even if mm-hmm. all the back office stuff worked, like in your situation, you have, I don't know what the other owners were like, but I couldn't imagine having mm-hmm. four Gail and Pats in a room all trying to figure out who, who, what direction everybody's going. I mean, just the nature of uh-huh. these, these dynamics, it's all like, regardless of what industry. So like, what was it like, like, what was there, how, like if you get three people merging into one, was there like, what was the strategy for like, who's going to lead? Was there like a structure for like how this is actually going to work from a people and a processes perspective? There was originally. It started off not so good. We all got into a room. There was other owners, and not everybody knew this was happening. Oh, my gosh. All right. So it didn't start off real well. And, yes, there were a lot of um, people in charge, and 
everybody wanted to be in charge. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, totally. it was, it wasn't great. What happened was because we were in three different locations, initially, we kind of still acted as though we were three different companies. So we still went around, went about our business, they went about theirs, but someone had to be the CEO of the new entity and Pat was chosen to be the initial CEO, and he was for the first three years. And it was his job to integrate, to go in and look at the you know balance sheets and straighten them out. So there was a lot to do. The one of the brokerages was a hundred years old, and oh my gosh. half the people there were the same age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they were well, all they a bunch of founders that are hit the, the, the same. <laughs> They just, just riding the riding the riding the renewals, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Oh so uh, there had to, there was a lot of work that had to be done, and it just took time. And so they ended up bringing in an outsider after Pat that was not part of either of the three, and uh, <clears throat> that probably ultimately was a good decision. But anyway, so and uh, so the company did has grown substantially. And uh, it's a very viable. So I think it's the largest independent agency in Minnesota right now. Wow! So you know, going yeah. back to like, well, why did why didn't some people know? Was it were those like second in commands, or was it? Was yes. it Okay. So you're you're they dealing were with like commands. Got it. And they they didn't have ownership yet, but they were promised ownership. Oh boy! So that's why they were <laughs> they were brought in. <laughs> so did, and they ultimately did get ownership. So, well, and that's what it's interesting if the, you know, based on like the mm-hmm. structure of the, of the private equity firm, I don't know uh, how much you can share, but like, you know, I, I teach a lot about how private equity firms are, are formed. You know, you got the fund and I don't know what fund they were on or like, you know, where they were in their timeline and where they got their money. But like, you know, we teach in our mm-hmm. boot, camp, boot camp, like where they get their money, where they're at in their fund, uh-huh. whether they've done this before. And then honestly, like how they work with you from a management perspective, like, so maybe, yeah. I don't know if you can, if I'm assuming most of that's public because they have to post all that stuff, but where did they get their money and like, what was the, yeah. what was the overall structure behind them? Yeah. Very, um, very, very unique. The, all of the executives or, or at least the top executives uh, came from a property and casualty insurance company. And I'm not sure if it was a client, maybe it was, but it was a Canadian uh, teachers pension fund that is what's funding this private equity so they have one boss and it's teachers so you know they're pretty easy to work with and so that's uh their role is to basically set up large property and casualty agencies throughout the country but they their unique structure is that they allow the the owners to retain ownership so that they they have a you know basically skin in the game as they say mm-hmm. to, um, and they're again totally arm's length yeah that's interesting they, so you don't you don't have a bunch financial. right they look at financial but it's a little bit different than some yeah. pe firms where like they're coming from you know I, I call them like the financial engineers where they're looking they're micromanaging based on spreadsheets no. and how you're doing yeah yeah just totally different than that when when that when this all came together, Pat asked the CEO of the 
private equity. So how, how often should we meet? Do you want to meet weekly, you know, on the phone? Or should I fly out quarterly? Or how do you want to handle this? And the CEO said three words, I'll call you. <laughs> that was it. Oh, you, and then and it was Pat just crossing his fingers that it's hopefully not every hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. How about some timelines? Line yeah. He, uh, I don't know that he hardly ever called Pat. <laughs> you know, we had to submit financials and, and I think there was a once a year meeting with all of the, of the acquisitions, but it was very hands off. And then that's been the means of their success, really. Well, that's awesome. So the, in that, yeah, did, that, did, great the, company. did the fund have an actual life span? Cause usually like a PE fund, they'll be like seven to 10 years long and then they have to sell everything or is this? Yeah, no, they don't. Really? Interesting. Mm-mm. Because they're directly yeah. owned by the teacher's pension. So therefore that's just a long, yeah. long hold and there, there's no goal to flip yeah. it. That's right. Oh my gosh. That's very, very unique. Um, mm-hmm. So when you guys, um, when the different, you know, executives or, you know, second in command or you, you and Pat and the owners got oh. to roll money into it, what were you, was it just one entity? So instead of a fund, was mm-hmm. it an actual like entity that you guys all rolled uh, and probably some equity into? And then was there a buyout structure? How, how did that whole like, you know, keeping this, they call it the second bite or like skin in the game like you're talking about. How did that whole structure work? Yeah. Well, we just formed a new company, changed the name. So eventually we all our names went away, took, you know, not after a few years, all, all the other names, we just, the decision was, we didn't know if we should keep all three names or, or roll it into one. So finally the decision was made to roll it into one. And then all the new owners just had an equity position in the new entity. Interesting. That's so and, cool. Cause like, you yeah. just don't hear, you don't hear that, that setup too often. Yeah. It's really a good one. <laughs> what, uh, it's a good setup. You know, because you had two out of the blue offers and, you know, yeah. going, going through this one, what was your, like, what was your, your team of advisors, your legal structure? You said, you know, you hired slightly different people, but, you know, mm-hmm. working with a completely different setup. So it's not an insurance company or strategic buyer. It's, you know, a financial buyer. Like, mm-hmm. what, like what was that with the team of advisors? What, like, how did the negotiation, the deal structure work? I mean, was, was there, I mean, was it completely different like experience? Only because in the second buyout, it wasn't based on revenue. It was based on EBITDA. Hmm, interesting. And I'm super embarrassed to tell you I didn't even know what that was. <laughs> I don't, don't I even know be embarrassed. <laughs> right. It was <laughs> slightly, impo- <laughs> slightly important, right? I mean, we're, we're talking yeah. multiples of EBITDA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I learned uh, fast. It, so, so that's how they did it, which I suppose, you know, obviously is more financially mm-hmm. based. That's so, so did you have, uh, did you use an investment banker at all on the second one? No. So like, but you're using a CPA and an attorney's deal. So they're, they're like, you had help mm-hmm. understanding, like, you know, getting a, like, uh, probably a crash course and what all that stuff meant. Was there any kind of interesting negotiations of what true EBITDA, like, you know, normalized their true EBITDA was, or was it pretty straightforward? I think, yeah, it was straightforward. And There's even, a, even the private equity firm helped educate us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's uh super interesting. The, they were great. Uh, so what was the, like any, any kind of thoughts on like the dynamics of having that many alpha 
individuals and one yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's some stuff behind that. Like, how do you how do you make something like that work? Like, and like, how did how did you guys choose the power dynamics or what the vision of you know? Because the whole point of buying companies and rolling them up like that is to to grow, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, right. I'm sure I'm sure it was a little clunky at first, and then it's just that you've had some good success. So, like, what were the power dynamics, and then what was how did you guys determine what the the ultimate vision was? Well, I think ultimately, you know, again, we we. Pat was in charge for three, the first three years, and it, 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 was, it wasn't easy to blend everyone together, but everybody kind of understood that this, if we're going to make it, we got to get along and get, get this together. So ultimately, you know, it all kind of worked out, and some of the power people, such as myself, decided to leave. So I retired after five years, or I decided to leave because I felt it was time for me to go. And so I think uh, some of the other people have made that decision as well. So I think it's that helped too for some of us to say, okay, it's time to bow bow out and let them move ahead. So a couple of questions on that is like with you and Pat, and I don't know how the other people from the different companies manage their, uh-huh. their books, but like with all the relationships that you had, what was the, yeah. like, the, like the transition like? I mean, how, how did you guys go about doing that for the clients? And Well, because I had a fantastic team with me when we were working with the clients. So the, when the clients, they didn't just look to me. Got it. They had... Uh, there's, it was about four of us on a team. And so for me to bow out and bring in another person, was all, it was very accepted because the other three team members weren't leaving. Mm-hmm. So we, when we went on appointments, it was always all four of us. So yes, they saw us as four different individuals that do four different things, me being strictly strategic. Mm-hmm. And so if I can prove to them that I'm bringing in another individual that has that same strategic mindset, then they felt comfortable. And we took, we didn't, uh, we didn't do this quickly. It was gradual. So they Mm -hmm. knew a whole year in advance I was leaving. Oh, that, that helps then. So there's not any panic yeah. or anything like that. No, no. And so there was a whole year and they, and they totally understood and accepted it. And, it, and I didn't have any pushback. Uh, you know, a question on like the, and this is kind of coming from myself and a lot of the stories that I've heard, like regardless of any buyer, like as you have a founder entrepreneur that has grown, you sold twice And Uh I don't, did you look at the business, like your baby and your clients? And then like, what was it like going through this transition, honestly, emotionally or or mentally, Gail? Because like, I think there's a dynamic where like, I remember like all the stuff that I had kind of helped build and things that I was running at at our business. Like it just, it's just weird when it's no longer yours. It is. The way that the, the structure was with the private equity though, you did feel like it was still your company. But to then leave it, I think the hardest part was leaving the people that you you know worked with for 20 years, both clients and employees. So that was the hardest part was saying goodbye to people, really. I didn't look at the business as a baby. I looked at it individually as individual clients and all our 
individual employees and so sad to miss the people not, well, it's, not the yeah. business well it's interesting that you Although say the that people are the business but yeah yeah no it wasn't you bring the up, business it was the people you bring up a good point and like mm-hmm. uh, it's it, i mean literally the title of the podcast life after business and it it, it it's yeah. grown over the three and a half years to like the technical stuff because i think you need to know the technical stuff so you can actually mm-hmm. get your ideal outcome whatever that looks like but like mm-hmm. you know the the crazy part about uh, you know, and what's a, it's our first principle called your drivers. Like, what do you want? And like, I think a lot of people uh, they don't realize that the business is their way of interacting with their their like community and relationships, your products, your vendors, your your employees, right. your clients. They're your like your whole like fabric of community, and it's right. How did like is that? I don't know if you got any insights on that, or just more as you're still processing it. Like, I think reinventing that without the business is extremely hard. Well, fortunately, I have other interests beyond the business and, you know, great social network. So that's helped. If I had lived my life entirely within the business, I think that would have been a real radical change. But Pat and I both do a lot socially. And so that that didn't end. Do you see a lot of, I don't know if you have other owners that are friends, do you see a lot of other people where they do the opposite of that, where it's everything to them and then they've walked out? Yeah, and... yeah that'd be tough. So if you that'd were to, be tough. Yeah, I, I've seen it. <laughs> I've, mm. I've really, the, you know, if you were to go back and, you know, talk to yourself before, you know, either before either of these sales in between, like, as you're growing, like, is there any, like, feedback or you know in, what would be what would be some of the insights you'd give give yourself back then <laughs> what's i think that's a that's a great question so much of what we did wasn't planned it just happened and so i can't give myself any insights because so much of it was just unplanned it just happened so i i I don't know. I, I, that's what's so interesting, and Pat will t- and I will talk about this. Is so both of the buyers approached us. We weren't even looking, and so how did that happen? I didn't put feelers out. Nothing. It just came to us. So I, I don't really have any advice to myself. <laughs> well, it's you know, it's because uh, do you think it went well? Didn't like plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, it. <laughs> How, you know Good what thing I find it, things happen as they should. <laughs> I, you know, there's a lot to be said about that. There's that's there's there's definitely a reason my business model is a little bit more challenging that we wouldn't have thought because a lot of people I think live the live the same way. But the, you know, and that sounds like because it, it you you're you're proud about the outcome and we're happy with it. And yeah, and I might yeah. be putting words in your in your mouth, but like there's a stat by a. An author called uh, Bo Burlingham. He he's a, he was the editor of Inc. Magazine that I've interviewed and talked to, and he wrote a book. And yeah. two th- uh, or seventy five percent of owners are unhappy twelve months later because they mm. actually let things happen, but it was like a de- you know a de- deceptive buyer, or they didn't get the right terms, or they didn't get their money. There's so many things, and I, I just mm. I find it interesting, like how you know it can go exactly the way you want, and you know, you, you yeah. surround yourself by good advisors during the deal though. Like, I mean, that's that, that, cause that could make or break when and how you actually, mm-hmm. you know, how things, how things transpire. That's, yeah. And we have, we have uh, zero turnover amongst our employees. Literally, they've all been there 20 to 25 years. And I think having that, having people that 
you trust is so important. Yeah. And, uh, and so I feel, so when I walked away, I knew I could trust all of them to continue to service the employee, I'm sorry, service the clients as we, as I would have. So I felt really confident about that, which made me feel very good. So then did you have that same of, of level of trust in the second buyer? Uh, yes. I, yes, I absolutely did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I think that's the hard I, I part do. where like, you know, cause people can say good things, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you still walk away, might feeling a little, little weary about the situation. Yes. No, we completely, I trust them. And the employees are, you know, they, they had to scale back on some things that we did for our employees, which was, we did a lot more than the average business, you know, <clears throat> definitely. So some of those things were taken away, but it was done very gradually and the employees are, are still paid, you know, very, very well. And so overall it's worked out, worked out. So for someone like yourself that has been a rainmaker for decades in your business and as yeah. you know, an entrepreneur, how are you dealing with retirement? I mean, is it like what's on the agenda? How are you like, do you have any advice for someone that's trying to figure out different hobbies? Can you, are you finding a way to get the, the rush and the adrenaline outside of a, a business? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, we're here in an, in an area that has endless amounts of things to do from sports to, you know, all sorts of things. So that's really good. Um, we're in a climate that you can be outside <laughs> all the time. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that probably uh, yeah, I can't imagine sitting in a house. That would drive me crazy. <laughs> so yeah, we're in a climate where you can be outside all the time, which I think is great. And it's only been, I'm closing in on two years. And so I, you know what, we are talking, uh, should we start another business? So we might, we might. That's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's, we're not old. So, <laughs> so what now? Can, right? <laughs> yeah. What now? So we, we have uh, possibilities and we're looking at that. So, well, this has been, this has I been took so a nice much two year break. <laughs> <laughs> now is there a little itch going on? That's gotta be scratched <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> but who knows? It's not right. I'm not going to do it. That's perfect. That I, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's no reason to to throw the dice and gamble everything all over again, right? <laughs> oh my gosh, no. <laughs> well, I no, appreciate. We this. I hate to say it, we didn't end up a billionaire, but oh well, well. right. I mean, you know, it doesn't. You know what? It wouldn't. It's so funny when you boil it, boil it all down to it, Gail. To it, you don't need like it, 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 the, all you're concerned about is annual annual income, right? And then obviously yeah. there's the legacy, <laughs> legacy planning and all the other stuff, but like, you know, you don't, yeah. to live the life that you want to doesn't, doesn't take as much as some people might think. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, I appreciate this. It's been so fun. Yeah. If there's a, if right. there's any, I don't know if there's any contact information you want to leave for the listeners. Otherwise, maybe just a LinkedIn or anything like that. And there's, if someone wants sure. to reach out. I have a LinkedIn. It's under my name, Gail McCann. So feel free to leave messages at the LinkedIn. That's great. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Yes. Thank you, Ryan. Have a great afternoon and and happy holidays. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Gail. I think my big takeaway is that Gail and Pat being able to pull that off with very little to zero planning, other than hiring really good advisors, 
is attend one of our two-day boot camps so that way you can intentionally get what they got because the stars aligning and that happening are so small that they are unbelievably lucky and they worked really, really hard, but the chances of selling to the wrong private equity firm or not having that agreement signed with your third party to buy the company back. There's so many things that they did right, but I suggest that you intentionally do the right things. So check out one of our two-day boot camps. You're going to learn how to grow a valuable company that creates freedom and options to do whatever you want with the business because you're intentionally doing the right strategies and the right value growth things to create as many options as you possibly can have. Check out the boot camp. It's on arcona.io and go to the boot camp page. If you have any questions, reach out to me on LinkedIn or on my email address at rtansom at arcona.io and I'm happy to share the agenda, walk through what other entrepreneurs are saying about it and I promise you will not regret the two days.